You live in the trees at the top of the rainforest canopy. Life is different there, untouched by humans and unbothered by what's happening on the ground. The view is, of course, spectacular. But the perspective is even more profound. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. I like got up into a tree and looked behind me and there was there was a sake monkey um, looking at me. And it was, sake monkeys are these weird things where they're, they're their body is actually pretty small, but they have this huge, like really fluffy fur. It looks like, you know, like a little old lady wearing a giant fur coat or something like that. Um, it, you know, it's like that feeling where it, like, that something's looking at you and then you, you turn around and so like this creepy looking monkey just like staring at you. <laughs> this week, slingshotting your way up a tree, monkeys, wasps, snakes, and other delights, and not really draining the swamp. Join us on a journey from Minnesota and California to Ecuador and Malaysia to study life from the highest tree limbs. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Kevin McLean. I am originally from Minnesota, but I live in California. I was a Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellow from 2016 to 2017, and I spent my year split between Malaysia and Ecuador. I'm a wildlife biologist and I study animals that live in the canopy of the rainforest. I was really interested in finding places that had um, a lot of biodiversity and a lot of animals that live up in the canopy, but maybe places that uh, hadn't really been studied as much. I picked out Malaysia, uh, Malaysian Borneo, and then um, the Amazonian region of Ecuador because they're two places that both of them are considered some of the most biodiverse places in the in the on the planet, and uh, and they have like a lot of a lot of different animals that live up in the trees. On the one hand, I sort of knew what to expect in terms of, of the research, but I had never worked in the, those forests. In Malaysia, it was, it was really, really amazing when I got there because just like the way that those forests look are so much different than a lot of other parts of, of the tropics. They have like a lower uh, lower canopy that's really connected. There's lots of like squirrels and stuff that then monkeys and everything that, that climb on these branches that are all connected to each other. But then there's these huge trees that like stick up ab above all of those other ones. They're like the tallest, tallest tropical trees in the world. So I was really interested in climbing those giant trees, um, which is what I ended up doing. In order to get up into the trees, I use a I use a slingshot that shoots a little weight bag attached to a string. Um, so I have to get that weight bag over a 
a big branch, a branch that's big enough to hold me, and then I can use that string to pull my rope over, and then I tie my rope to another tree back on the ground, and I can climb up the other end of that rope. So I'm like, okay with the slingshot. Pretty good, I, I would I would say, but it, it's like a, a long process sometimes. There's not a lot of room for error um, in terms of getting getting to the right branch. It is like a lot of work to get up there. It's it's sort of a pain to to get everything into the tree and including yourself. But then you like get up to the top and there's sort of this like breath. You're like, oh, this is like this is really cool. This is this is why I'm I'm doing all of this. But you you always have to be very wary because things can go go wrong no matter how many climbs you've done and everything like that. There are definitely times when it feels like the entire forest is sort of working against you in different ways. I had one day in Ecuador, so I spent probably, I don't know, three or three or four hours trying to get a line into one tree and never ended up getting it. And so I went on to the next one, shot the line in really quickly, uh, pulled my rope over. When you start climbing up, you do what's called a bounce test, where you and, and often another person will grab the rope and you like pull on it as hard as possible so that you can like get, you know, see if, if that branch is going to hold. So we did that. And then I started climbing up. I got like 10 feet up the rope, maybe. And I heard a crack. And then all of a sudden, I was only like two feet off the ground. <laughs> so what ended up ha happening is that my rope was leaning against another branch that broke. And then it started to fall and got caught on another branch above me. So it ended up being this probably like 200 pound limb that could have fallen right on top of me. So I, I like switched the angle of my rope and ended up climbing up the other side. And then I was just about to start setting up my camera and I rested my hand against the trunk of the tree right on top of a wasp nest. And it was like it was like out of uh, out of a cartoon where like the this like jet of wasps starts like streaming out from under my hand basically and they're like all over my face all over my ears I'm like wearing a helmet so they're like buzzing inside of the helmet too and I just had to like close my eyes and like come down the rope and I my my first climbing instructor made us do everything with our eyes closed all the time and all of a sudden it made made more sense why he made us do that It was kind of every every negative emotion you can have all in the span of, of like a few hours. And I came out of the tree and I just like sobbed on the trail. I like couldn't handle all of like everything that had happened. And Ignacio, the student I was working with was like, uh, I, I don't know what to do with you right now. <laughs> It is physically a different view of a forest um, to be up up in the in the trees like that. It's not lost on me that like very few people will actually have that perspective. And part of what I was really interested in doing is, is sharing that to some extent, either through my writing, through photography, through um, just like 
talking about about that process. But I also like brought a bunch of people up in the trees with me. I had two like complete sets of climbing gear. So over the course of the like five or six months I was in Ecuador, I brought probably 40 or 45 people climbing with me, students and other researchers, some of the staff from the research station. One of the cooks really wanted to go climbing with me. And like, so being able to sort of give someone else that experience and show them this this world that I spend so much time thinking about is really special. And then also finding ways to share that with people that I, I'm just never going to get a chance to bring bring up into the trees with me. There was one one of the trees I climbed several different times in Ecuador. I went up there and there was a group of uh, of capuchin monkeys which are they're like they're not huge. They're like the size of a cat or so. They were in a tree nearby but pretty far in terms of like they couldn't get to, get to me. They were behind all these leaves and then they would like pop their faces out and they like they do um, these sort of threats where they they kind of like show their teeth and like do the, these little like threat displays. So every so often these little monkeys would like pop out and like like <laughs> bare their teeth at me and then hide back in the in the trees and then they'd pop out again from another spot and like <laughs> and threaten me and stuff. People often ask me about like whether I'm seeing snakes in, in the trees and everything, and I, I never actually have because partly, I mean, it's not that they don't live up there, but I think it takes me so long to get up there and I'm like bouncing on branches. They've got like a lot of, of lead time to go somewhere else. The only time I have actually seen a snake in the tree was in uh, in Panama years ago. I got up into the top of a tree and a snake was in the tree I was in and then it jumped like it like jumped into like a lower tree nearby um which i think one it's like crazy to see a snake like jump 40 feet or whatever but also you know it like didn't want to be there while i was there so um i don't i don't see snakes very frequently but they they're definitely definitely out there The first place we went, the the first station I went to in Malaysia, we were I was on a bus, and so all of my stuff was was underneath. When we were taking the bus down to the forest, the durian was in season, which is a, a very smelly fruit that's quite famously, you know, banned in hotels and airports and stuff like that. But it is it's a very unique uh, taste and texture, and I actually really enjoy it. But there was a like a stand on the side of the road that was selling durian, and so they stopped the bus, and like all these people got off and like bought all the durian they could, and they weren't allowed to bring it onto the like the buses with where the seats are. So they put it all underneath. By the time we got to the research station, like all of my stuff just like smelled like durian. And it's it stayed that way for like a month. Um. (laughs) 
I arrived in in Malaysia in like September of 2016. So I was I was abroad during the election, and I had like you know all of us had gone through the process of figuring out how to vote from abroad, and that is its own its own adventure in itself. And then I was on my way to the research station when the election was actually happening. You know, it was like huge global news. I think every every election, I, I'm always I'm always shocked at how much the rest of the world is really paying attention because it feels it feels so self-centered to imagine that the rest of the world is is watching our election. But everywhere I went, people were at, they would hear my accent and then they would ask me about about the election. I was at the station. It's this research station in in the middle of the forest uh, called Danum Valley. So I didn't have a lot of contact with you know what was going on with my with friends or family or news or anything. So I really relied on tourists that would come into the station and and sort of fill me in on what was going on back in the States, like other parts of the world and stuff. There was a Swedish couple that came maybe like a week or so after the election. And, uh, and I just, you know, asked them what was going on, what they had heard. And they told me that they were planning to shut down Everglades National Park. And I was like, that is an oddly specific thing to like be in the news right and like and especially at this day I like I, I like didn't really quite understand but then they were talking about yeah like they um yeah they're gonna shut shut down Everglades it's like it's like it's all over the news it's all anyone's talking about and I was like that is so weird and then once the internet came back I found out that it was actually a misunderstanding of the phrase drain the swamp <laughs> So, you know, I, I mean, it's a very famous swamp, right? Um, so uh, I, I, I sort of got what, where they were coming from, but I was so confused for like a week because I just ha I had like no access to any other information. I really relied on on all these people. So like occasionally an American would come through, but it was mostly like Europeans or people from other Asian countries and stuff that that I had to rely on for all of my my news about about the States. <laughs> months before I left for Malaysia, I, um, I had gotten married. And so my husband was in, in school at the time, so he wasn't able to come with me. And so a few weeks after getting married, like he went off to Alaska for a clinical rotation. Then I left for Malaysia, opposite ends of the world for sure. And uh, so he was able to come and visit me over, over the holidays, over like Christmas and New Year's and stuff. And he came with me out into the field. You know, partly I sort of brought him out there under the, the false impression that that I just wanted him to see where I had been working, which is true. It's like it is really, you know, you spend so much of your life in these places and you want the people that are close to you to see them. Um, so I did want him to see the station, but I also had a lot of work that had to get done. I had like all these cameras that had to get collected. I had to set up a whole bunch of other ones. And I knew I had at least like one really, really rough day in the field and then a bunch of other ones following. So I brought him out there and he was really excited. He, he, um, you know, just to to see the um, the station and the forest and stuff, and 
we started the day really early and and um, went out to the farthest camera. And when we got out there, we saw there was an orangutan, like a, a mother with her her infant on her belly. You just don't see there's there's not many places in the world that you can see orangutans at all. And then even at this station, it's pretty rare to see them out there. So to just just like see an animal like that, such a, like an iconic representation of these kinds of forests and stuff, and to you know have have somebody that's important with me for that um, was really great. So that's something that I know both of us will always remember. But I also know he is going to remember the rest of the day even more because we were out for we were hiking through the forest for I think like nine hours that day. It was hot. Uh, it's muggy. In uh, Southeast Asia, they have leeches that are—they're like land leeches that like crawl up your boots and then they like they bite you through your clothes and all that sort of stuff. And you know, he was like battling the heat and the leeches and the humidity. Um, and it's just like a hard—it's hard terrain to walk on. And he didn't quite have the right shoes, which is sort of my fault too. And so over the course of of the day, like he was just exhausted. I looked at him and I was like, "That is not a color I've ever seen." human face <laughs> um he ended up losing both of like the toenails on his big toes because he, they had been like pounding into rocks so much but we have this we have this great photo of at the end of the day after his sort of like deathly coloring went away where we um at the end of the day you have to cross a river to get back to the station and it's like it's so hot and uh even though you're like carrying a lot of like very heavy and expensive equipment it's like the most refreshing thing in the world to cross that river um and so we have this great picture picture of us at the end of this like really long day crossing the river and everything and or you know he's all smiles at that point but it was a really really rough day um and uh he ended up staying at the station for the rest of the days we were there So again, at the end of the day, uh, coming coming back to the research station in Danum Valley in Malaysia, you had to cross this river to get back. And um, it's like a shortcut. You could potentially go go on land, but it is way shorter and really, really like nice and refreshing to just cross the river. And there were two uh, research assistants that were with me who had been like helping me out all day. They're like on the shorter end of, uh, of the spectrum. Um, and so... So we were like crossing the river and we we're like carrying our bags above above our heads. Um, and so you're you sort of balance it on your head or at some points you have to like hold it and hold it hold it straight above you. And so I'm sort of like bopping along, like just like kind of tiptoeing on the on the river and like uh, and the the bottom of the river, and I'm holding my bag up above me. And then I see one one guy's in and he came by. Uh, and he's like a little bit shorter than I am. Um, and so I, like, it was like the water was like at his nose and he was just sort of like, you know, holding his bag up above. And then the second guy, Bob came by and he's even shorter. And it was just like two little hands holding a backpack sticking up above the water. Um... Every time you go to a new research site, you really have to get it, get to know it better and just sort of on a base level on of the kind of work that I do. Like I, I, 
am studying an area of the forest that we just we don't really know a lot about because it's really inconvenient to do work up in the canopy. So there you are, are in a way also feeling like foreigner because you get up there and you know all of a sudden you see the forest from a completely different perspective. You s- suddenly like see birds flying below you and you know you look look across to another tree and there's like monkeys staring at you like not knowing what to do with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean there's a lot of a lot of feeling out of place um, especially at the beginning and then over the course of 2 3 4 months of going back to these same places, climbing into the same trees, like going to the same research stations, you uh, yeah you get to know people, you get to know the place, you get to know the forest a lot better so that by the end of it, I I realized how much I had actually gotten accustomed to it and really gotten to know um, these places. When I think about Malaysia, I, I definitely think about Danum Valley in the Danum Valley uh, Field Center. It is just like in this like beautiful sort of pristine forest. You know, in in some ways, it was a place that I I was the most isolated because I I didn't have a lot of contact in terms of internet or anything like that. I didn't have I didn't know as many people there, and there were just fewer researchers there at the time. So I I was there on my own quite a bit. But it is just like this sort of iconic place. When I think of like a forest in Borneo, that's what I think about. You know, it's one of the few places where you can see orangutans just like wandering through the forest, like in their natural environment. There are elephants that came through every so often, which causes causes some problems with like people's research equipment and stuff. But it's um, it just like feels like this very wild, remote place. Like, similarly, in Ecuador, almost all of my time was spent at these two research stations that were around Yasuni National Park. Yeah, I think about like I, I had to go in like back and forth between those those stations a number of times to set up cameras and collect them and, and everything. And it's a two hour boat ride from one station to the next. On that boat ride, we saw we saw like giant river otters and and like freshwater dolphins and you know it's just like a sort of another reminder that there are really like wild places left out out in the world and that's that's part of why we do the the kind of re- this kind of research is to make sure that we understand those places and can preserve those places and when I think about my my best experiences or favorite places those are the ones that come to mind but they're also like where i got attacked by wasps and leeches and all these other things so it's like a lot of mixed emotions (laughs) so is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, 
Kevin McLean reminisced about his time as a Fulbright National Geographic Fellow. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcasts, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks this week to Kevin for sharing his passion about nature's untouched places. Ana Maria Sinatine did the interview and I edited this segment. Featured music was Brass Buttons and Curio by Blue Dot Sessions, Battle Normal by Boxcat Games, Pretty and Cruddy Beat and Proliferate by Poddington Bear, and Caravan by Ralph Mottery and his orchestra. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.